Indonesian's relationship with loans is, let's just say, complicated. Nationally, the word has gotten a bad rap since the government's debt is often perceived as being granted by these foreign lenders trying to take advantage of the country or threaten the nation's sovereignty. Even though Indonesia's debt-to-GDP ratio actually remains lower than most of its G20 peers. But on an individual level, the picture is very different. This is Indonesia In-Depth. I'm Sean Corrigan. And I'm Tanita. And I'm Veronica. Indonesian poor people are very... I don't know, it's like a culture to lend money, right? To any, even like loan sharks in their village. We call it Mama Inang, you know, Inang. This is like the protector, you know, landlords, something like that. They have landlords who take care of themselves. In West Java, it's very, you know, like mushroom, something like that. It's a culture to lend money. That is Dr. Haikal Nuryakin senior researcher at the Institute for Economic and Social Research at the University of Indonesia, and a senior lecturer at the university's Faculty of Economics and Business. He has written numerous journals on development economics, finance, and behavioral economics. He mentions Mama Inang, which translates literally as host mother. But these are men and women who have this informal business of lending money to members of the neighborhood who are in quick need of loans, attached with various interest rates. Because of their proximity and deep knowledge of the borrower's personal life, they can latch on to these borrowers in perpetuity. Dr. Haikal, thank you for being here today. Thank you. Taking out a loan itself isn't an inherently bad thing to do, whether it's to support a business to boost production or even for consumption purposes like buying a new phone or a new pair of shoes. The practice of taking informal loans from loan sharks or informal lenders in the neighborhood is rampant, but is highly unsupervised, unregulated, and lacks consumer protection. And as a result, the poor and vulnerable are taken advantage of. These informal lending methods have reached the depths of Indonesian society. But the landlord is there. The mama inang is there, always there if I need them, right? Even they always something like menepuk-nepuk, okay, gimana kabar, how are you, what's your family? But they exploit them, for sure. So we thought to ourselves, what if these lending practices are more regulated, more institutionalized in a form of, say, a bank or other formal financial system? Could that prevent these predatory practices from happening? But there are problems with banks as well. Well, not many people actually have bank accounts in Indonesia or are actually using the bank services if they have. This issue is what economists would call as financial inclusivity, which you will be hearing a lot in this episode. That's when we talk to Gede Putra Arsana, a senior financial specialist at the World Bank Indonesia. If we may first look at the traditional banking sector in Indonesia, based on a 2017 World Bank survey that there are around 49% of adults that have bank accounts. 
but there remains to be a large number of underbanked individuals in Indonesia, uh, those who have bank accounts but aren't able to fully receive financial services. These individuals mainly rely on informal services, particularly when it comes to consumer loans. Um, so there's still some difficulties in getting full financial inclusion in Indonesia. Can you tell us a little bit about this data and why this underbanked is happening? And I think let me just try to clarify first in terms of the definitions of financial inclusions, because I think the terminology that the World Bank use and the one that is being used by the government is slightly different if you pay attention to the presidential regulations. Because when you mentioned about the unbanked, actually that 49% that we presented in the Findex data is access to transaction accounts. And then transaction accounts means an account that you can basically deposit and then withdraw and then do transfer. And in that sense, it means either a banking account or a cooperative account or a mobile money account that can combine those three functions. Now, if we're looking at the definitions of financial inclusions in Indonesia itself, based on the presidential regulations, it's basically access to any kind of formal product and services. So in that sense, there might be slightly difference in terms of measurements and then numbers. And then if you look at in terms of the progress, Indonesia has done a lot since 2011, the first time we did the Findex. So it grows from 19 to 36 and then now 49%. So they're just missing just a bit more towards the 75% targets but a lot of things that has happened in Indonesia, a good progress as well. It seems that there is a rise in inclusivity, and it is true when you see the numbers of people accessing financial system. But it's one thing to have access and another to actually use the service. So the, the account is only passive, they only take the money and then just then live at the three months and then take it again. <laughs> Something like that. So this is not yet like a very good like because financial inclusion there are stages uh, or they are uh, like criterion because not just access but also usage. Usage it it would be much lower than that rate for the usage in financial inclusion. So apparently the formality of the banks is what limits their reach. And people who are able to access banks and take loans, many have also been subject to forceful measures by debt collectors hired by the banks themselves. The government continues to make an effort to improve the situation. And we very soon learned about this agent-based banking services that help reach more rural people. Just for our listeners, including myself, mm -hmm. where Indonesia stands now in this consumer banking, is it good, fair, decent? What's sort of the measurement of where should Indonesia be? Oh, that's a very good question. So I think in terms of the progress itself, Indonesia ranks one of the highest in terms of progress, especially if we compare us between the Asian countries or the Asian countries or developing countries, because the progress is almost twice in the past three years. And then the adoptions of mobile money and then the agent banking penetrations has been good. Mm -hmm. I would put it like that. But 
if we look at the potentials of Indonesia, uh, it can grow more because even if we talk about the distance problems in which one of the difficulties for Indonesia, since 2015, both OJK and BI has introduced the agent banking concepts, right? There's a Lakupanda agents, there's a DFS, DFS agents in which consumer can go to these agents to open an account. Can you explain a little bit about that, about how the agents work? So the Lakupande is the agents of bank. So if you want to open a basic savings account, then you can go to that particular agents, which is normally either individuals or a pop mom shops. And then you just need to fulfill a simplified uh, know your customers process in which normally either uh, a normal KTP or even other types of uh, identifications. And then you can open a basic savings account. The basic savings account is not your regular account because a basic savings account doesn't have any monthly admin fee and it has a limitations of uh, 20 million balance but it's completely free and it's easy that's why you can open it at the agents so with this uh, laku pandai they could appoint like warung biasa mm-hmm. small shop also like uh, airtime agent they could appoint that agent in order to become their financial uh, services agent So the, these these agents are selling SIM cards and other services yes, and also at a very small le- local long, level. Also food, something like food. that. Food, so and these small little shops also Snack, now yeah. can become a, a banking agent. And that's yes. what Laku Pandai is. And that's a government initiative. Yes, uh, all, almost all the, the big banks, mm-hmm. the book for uh, banks like Bandiri, B- BRI, BNI, they have this Laku Pandai. Mm-hmm. There's also BTPN. It's like book two or book three. Uh, so this is the smaller one rather than the largest bank. They also have uh, this Laku Pandai agent. So I just want to I just want to confirm the answer to mm. why the shift can happen in such a short time from the consumer side your answer is that it's mainly because the government has provided more supply yes so there's no issue of like there's more trust there's more awareness it's less to do with that and it's more to do with more services provided is that true you know uh, poor people are afraid to enter the banks even in in the city why are they afraid because the building is very luxury Oh, so it's a little, it's intimidating, intimidating yeah, yeah. right? So to have this kind of small shop is very good, right? They already very convenient to go to this shop, right? They already uh, very convenient to buy something in this shop. So if they provide financial services, it's very good. So this is also good even for the poor people in the city, for the unbanked people in the city, right? Because they are intimidating with this kind of luxurious building. Yeah, so e- even banks. though the bank is two kilometers away, they prefer yes, to deal yes, with these other agents. Sure. But has Laku Pandai reached the people that they want to reach? Can you explain sort of right now, you have the Laku Pandai, 
it's actually physically having people at the village level, correct? Yeah, it should be like that, but it is not. Because Indonesian or central bank, they choose to have this bank-based financial inclusion, not telco-based financial inclusion. Uh, hold on there for a second. Let's break down what he means when he says that traditional banks and telco players drive financial inclusivity. As you may know that in the world, this is financial inclusion is drives by two methods. So government could choose whether they want to like telco-based financial inclusion. They mainly drive these telecom uh, players to provide financial services or very traditional, something like bank-based financial inclusion. So they push the bank to provide financial services. So this is the laku pandai. In Indonesia, these telecom players, they don't involve in this laku pandai. They involve in like e-money, electronic money. So okay, we use bank-based system to help inclusivity and not telcos. But what's the problem with that? And what we found in our study two or three years ago, I don't know now, they only appoint their agents, the one located in very close to their banks. So this is not far enough to the remote area. They only maybe like two kilometers from the banks. It is actually rational because they need to control, right? They need to inspect. They need to. So this is costly to have like a very far away agents, right? So they only have like a very close agent to their banks. So, you know, the one who underbank is maybe like in the upper mountain, something like that. But the agents only like mm-hmm. in the in the very city and, of the... And why is that? Does it come down to just the, the cost and no, why? No, this is because of the Bank Indonesia regulations. They prohibit telco players to appoint informal agents. So this warm toko could be provided by the bank, but not non-bank institution. Like internet penetration, mobile phone penetration is huge right in Indonesia. And also they, they have many like airtime agents in very rural area, in a very remote area. They could appoint their agents, right? Telkomsel, for example, could appoint their agent as their e-money agent, right? In a very remote area. But the banks, they just want to have their agents close to their bank branch, right? Because, yeah, you know, a central bank is a bank. So, like, bank bias policy, something like that, you know? Mm, because this is the financial services. They said that Telkomsel doesn't have, like, traditional businesses in financial. They are afraid something could be heaven. So, in other words, that, yeah, I know that uh, Bank Central is, right, very risk averse about this. So, they just put the regulation, something like that. So, only bank could appoint informal agents. So we learned that both traditional banks and laku pandai agents can't even reach rural people, let alone provide them a safer lending alternative. So what else can be done then? Now, if you're like a regular people in the village, you don't have a credit history, you never borrowed before, your only options would be either loan sharks or if you're lucky, you can find either like the, the nearest pawn shop or a cooperative there. But if not, then if P2P is there, you can try to do that. Or otherwise, a group lending. And what would be good with the peer-to-peer at the moment is that by using the peer-to-peer lending, actually the consumers is start building up their credit history. Because as per OJK regulations, 
all of this peer-to-peer lending is actually providing information to the private credit bureau, which in the end links to the SLIC, mm-hmm. the credit registry. So maybe they can start either from the group lending or the peer-to-peer lending, start building up their credit history, and then after that they can sort of like moving towards a formal, uh, like the standard traditional banking channels. But we were immediately skeptical of this idea. Though it's tempting to think that once access to loans becomes simple and easy, it is going to make everyone better off, we don't think that the business model is good for consumers, especially for the most vulnerable. Since the fintech industry, it's very growing. And in fact, not just the people love it, but also the government love them. The government want them to thrive because the investment value is like huge. Rudy Andara has once claimed that one of the biggest investors right now uh, are on the fintech industry. Like everyone is just want to invest on it. So it seems like everything goes well. But yet the headlines that we see on the worst and the extreme examples of the consequence of P2P loan, especially, uh, especially consumptive loans are extreme as well. People committed suicide because they can't pay for just, you know, a lifestyle, a consumptive kind of loan. I know people who utilize um, this lending facilities from the P2P apps, not because they are poor, not because they're in need, but just simply because they wanted to keep up to a certain lifestyle. Um, and it's just the fact that it's so easy, that's seamless, it's very fast and very minimum requirement can get you instant access to cash. Uh, so we were wondering what would be the lending behavior that this environment induces to the consumer? Yeah, first I would like to please differentiate between the consumption lending and the productive lending. A productive lending service is a loan for micro, small and medium enterprises to generate capital so they can sustain their businesses. While consumptive lending is for everyday consumer needs, from rice and baby formula to mobile phones and wedding parties. As far as I know, this productive lending is all, I think performance is not bad, I think. Not bad is not good also, right? But the consumptive one is something like you already stated that, yeah, it's quite a problem for the consumptive lending. Here's why Haikal thinks that productive lending is helping businesses. So I think this, this this one is very good because I know they have already like MSMEs, this micro and small and medium enterprise. They are already in financial uh, sector. They are already included, financially included, right? But they excluded from the lending from the banks because they don't have collateral. So they cannot access these bank lendings. But they already save in this bank account, but not the consumptive lending. The consumptive lending mainly provided by their landlords or Mama Inang or maybe by loan shark, something like that, right? No, I, I want to tell information about the difficulty of this P2P going to the rural areas because they have to compete with this landlord, Mama Inang. They have to compete with this loan shark, informal sector. 
and what the P2P cannot provide these poor people in the rural is something like trust and family sense of life something like that you know the friendliness of these landlords right although they you know they they exploit the poor right but they know everyone in their family they know even the name of their child <laughs> they even provide this you know lending for the birth of their children <laughs> right so Sometimes the rural people or the poor people don't want to. Okay, the payment is uh, smaller. Interested? What? But what is that? Because they 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 not based on economic circulation, right? Yeah. Uh, even I don't know whether you are still here or not. If I need you, but the landlord is there. The mama inang is there. Always there if I need them, right? Even they always something like. Menepuk-nepuk. Okay, gimana kabar? How are you? What's your family? But they exploit them for sure with the high interest rates. Yeah, I mean that was one of the issues about having information, understanding the economics or the, actually your your responsibilities and liabilities yes. for some of these yes. loans. And I think some uh, surveys that I was reading says that the borrower is only interested in what do I owe you. Like next week or next month, yes. they don't ask uh, how much is the interest rate or all these yes. things. They don't. They're not thinking beyond that, and it's, they're only thinking on that one payment. Because two people are present biased, right? They're short-sighted, right? They live their own on today. They don't think even yeah. the, like tomorrow. We live today, and someone give you land, just take it, right? And don't bother about tomorrows, because I have many things to think. But people also ask whether this kind of P2P is like digital loan stock, right? Yeah, the problem is first, at this stage, we cannot judge maybe the P2P industries because they are still in the infant industries. It means that they don't even have like economies of scale to do business. So a very small economy uh, scale of industry, it means in, a, in economic theory, it will be the cost is high for them in order to provide these services. That's why their interest rate also high. So people seems compare this with loan shark rate, but that's okay. But don't judge it in this infant stages because once they have like very large economies or they have already like economies of scale i think the price is going down the interest rate going down for sure and they also build this kind of social credit scoring right they would have something like this social or maybe like economic credit scoring they will build the data uh, in this kind of environment, I think they could also provide a very good borrowers right, for their consumption needs. Not just give it something like, okay, just loosely give it to potential borrowers without any uh, metrics. But they do have this kind of system later. So don't judge them now because it's, they, they are still in the infant stages. saying that we can't really tell what kind of behavior that they're inducing because they're still in the infant stage and perhaps the problem that we're seeing now is because they're receiving quote-unquote bad borrowers 
Yeah, for, uh, but please differentiate between the legal P2P lending. You know, there are only like 100 registered P2P lending uh, under OJK, right? But there already there are numerous something like P2P, and we could not differentiate even in the news whether the one who want to. Uh, Suicide is the one who 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 borrow from this from what kind of P 2 P, right? I, I agree, but but there's also a report from Jakarta Legal Aid collected this complaints from P 2 P consumers, and these complaints are not only for the unregistered P 2 P services, but also part of them are for this registered one on JK. Yeah, that's true, as I mentioned before, but. Maybe because the system have not well developed for this kind of like credit scoring system, right? And from the demand side, lending is something like a culture in Indonesia. They could like easily want to take land from anybody who want to provide them, right? Without any economics calculation, something like that. You know, that's Indonesian people, something like that. Even that's a rural rural area or a poor people, something like that. Doing very yeah irrational behaviors for lending for their needs or unneeds something like that right. So I don't know whether this is like mistargeted or this is like whether they are intent or not intent right. Because if they are not intent, they they could screen their borrowers right. But they don't have information about this type of borrowers yet. So maybe later I will expect that it will be improvement on the P2P lending. So in the future, do you think P2P lending would ever be penetrating towards these remote areas? I don't know. I don't think P2P also already provided to the very remote area because I will have like a working paper on this that Indonesian financial incorporation is very fragmented because I don't think P2P are going to the very remote area. They just only like suburban area. So urban and suburban, but not even going to rural because they don't have any, you know, capital and facilities going to very rural area. So the one who are provided services by these P2Ps are once again the urban and also the suburban uh, for lending. But I just want to emphasize that uh, in the microfinance literature, saving is as important as lending. If you all only provide lending, it will be something like, yeah, this is also in line with my opinion, it will be disasters. According to Haikal, saving is what allows people to secure emergency funds to finance education, medical, and special occasion fees such as funerals, which is a huge deal for Indonesians regardless of class and culture. Moreover, it prevents people from taking on the burden of loans, which can save them a great deal from the potential abuses that we've just talked about. We started off thinking that because loans are a part of the society's culture, it's best to ensure that policies are tailored to protect them through safer and more regulated avenues. But then we soon learn that traditional banks can't reach rural people that much and still employs loan sharks to collect debts from those who can't access it. And Lakopande banking agents have not been able to reach the rural people to the extent that it could or should have been. It seems like online P2P loan services is the next shot. Though we were once skeptical about it, the P2P productive loan services does seem to be helping MSMEs. But for consumptive lending, 
which is very popular nowadays and where consumers are being bombarded with ads for such services, I think they've been problematic for the urban and suburban markets. In the end of the day, it seems like the loan sharks and informal loans problem that we initially thought would have to be eradicated will triumph as a better option in one way or another. But perhaps what could change is not the supply, but the demand itself, the customers. Perhaps it is the loan culture itself that needs to change. As what Haikal said, it is also the saving culture that needs to be cultivated among Indonesian consumers. We'd like to say thank you to Gede Putra Arsana, Senior Financial Specialist from World Bank Indonesia, and Haikal Inorakin from the Institute of Economic and Social Research at the University of Indonesia for their time and insights. Help us improve our podcast and send us story pitches to info at indonesiaindepth.com and follow us on Twitter at IndoIndepth for updates. This episode was produced by Sean Corrigan, edited by Tanita, and the researcher for this episode is myself, Veronica. Thank you for listening.